This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Welcome to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. I, of course, am your host, David Dole, and coming up on today's show, a conservative MP has threatened legal action against Twitter users for calling him racist. I'll break down those details and take your calls on that after 9.15. Also, the results of the American midterm elections and why a battle going on in Georgia should bother anyone concerned about the future of democracy. And later on in the show, how can we address PTSD? Some incredible research shows that we do have a potential solution, but can we convince society to adopt it? I'll explain that. All that and more coming up on The David Dole Show, but first... It's Remembrance Day in Canada. And on Remembrance Day, instead of filling it with endless platitudes and empty gestures, I think we should focus on what more we can do for our veterans. Housing First programs for homeless veterans is a step in the right direction. And of course, uh, later on in the show, I'll be discussing a potential solution for PTSD, which of course many uh, veterans suffer from. But also, as my next guest writes, uh, quote, we need to remember not just the sacrifices of soldiers, but also the extraordinary resolve our society showed the last time it faced an existential threat. Those words from Robert Green, teacher at Westmount High School in Montreal and a contributor to Ricochet.media and the writer of the opinion piece titled Shared Sacrifices of the Past Show Way Forward on Climate. Robert, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing great. So your piece really stood out to me. You make a connection that I don't often see, and that's connecting world war to climate change. So explain how you see that connection and why we should be taking climate change as seriously as a new world war. Well, I have to say I I can't take credit for for sort of making that connection myself. I mean, I first heard uh, David Suzuki uh, making that connection recently. Uh, and before that, you know, people like Noam Chomsky have also been uh, making that, that mm-hmm. connection in their, in their public statements. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's an important connection to make because uh, we've just had this, uh, this report from the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate, uh, climate Change uh, that is really um, awake. It, it's an alarming statement uh, and a call for humanity uh, to act. And the consequences of not acting um, are, are cataclysmic uh, on, on a level that makes, you know, the, the, the threat posed by Nazism uh, seem small. And, that, you know, that's an almost unthinkable thing to say when you, when you consider what that threat represented in our world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what, what the IPCC has said is that uh, we have 12 years uh, to reduce global emissions by 45 percent uh, and until 2050 to reduce them further uh, by 100 um, percent. So this is this is the kind of action or this is the kind of the, uh, a target that is uh, is not going to be require small actions. This is uh, we need to fundamentally change the way that we're doing things. And I, I think the, the kind of actions that we took, uh, you know, during the Second World War, um, we, we need to look back on uh, and be inspired by. Mm-hmm. So how do you think uh, Canada fares so far in terms of their action on, on climate change? Clearly, I, th- I think uh, I can assume you don't think we're going far enough. Um, but what do you think Canada and the world really has done 
to try and combat this, and what more uh, should we do? Well, we've, we've set some targets, but we, we really haven't done enough at all to make the fundamental changes in our economy. So, I mean, just to give you a couple of examples, I mean, just, you know, we, we in Canada uh, subsidize the fossil fuel industry uh, to the tune of about $3.3 billion a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, imagine what, three, what that amount of money could do in terms of subsidies for, for green industry that would be uh, creating jobs and, and, and not threatening the planet. Uh, you know, just, you, just for example, I mean, the, the geothermal uh, potential here in Canada uh, is, is enormous. And, you know, uh, Iceland back in the 70s made major investments to, to shift over its public buildings over to geothermal. Uh, and has been reaping the, the rewards since, both, you know, for the environment and for their economy. Um, so, you know, we have, to, we have to look at doing those sorts of things. And so, uh, but, you know, in addition to the $3.3 billion in subsidies we've got, we, our Prime Minister has just bought a pipeline yeah. for $4.5 billion, right? <laughs> that pipeline uh, is know, ridiculous. A, a, a pipeline that no oil company would invest in because mm-hmm. it was uh, so risky economically. And so, you know, this is something that as potentially as disastrous for Canada's economy uh, as, as it is cataclysmic for the world. Uh, so, you know, we in Canada, um, we, we play, we have, we, we have a, uh, a disproportionate uh, effect in terms of our carbon footprint. And that means I think we have a responsibility to be, to be world leaders, uh, you know, in this struggle. Yeah. And uh, Canada were world leaders on this issue in the 80s. And it seems like we kind of fell off since then. Well, absolutely. And if you look at the action that that uh, that was initiated by Canada uh, to to take care of the the ozone layer, I mean that that has yielded success. I mean they're saying like the ozone layer is now fixed. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know collective action uh, works, but what is missing uh, is the political will, and uh, and that's what's needed. And and I think you know also we need to look at. Uh, the sorts of things our government did during the Second World War to, to ensure victory. And, and, you know, that was to intervene in the economy. Like, we didn't sort of mess around with worrying about whether or not certain actions would, you know, uh, you know offend the tenets of, uh, of uh, free market ideology. Yeah, that was actually uh, <laughs> my next question. So right. yeah, in the piece, you talk about uh, the strong government uh, intervention during yeah. uh, the World War and how... Um, the, uh, the Crown Corporations and Bank of Canada, what they were doing during wartime. Can you sort of go into that and give yeah. people this perspective of how big of a deal that was uh, in terms of what they were doing at that time? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you have to consider that, you know, at this point in Canada's history, uh, we were just, you know, coming out of the Great Depression, and suddenly we had these enormous needs for war production. And so the question was sort of how, how to fund that. And, you know, our, our government, to its credit, I think, came up with a very good idea and, you know, founded a public bank. And, you know, the purpose of the Bank of Canada, as written right into its own charter, uh, was to give loans to the different levels of government to, I think, first the federal and provincial, and I think later even municipal governments were getting in on it. Uh, and they, they got interest-free loans. 
that that would be paid back, uh, but that uh, you know for that time could be used to to ramp up war production to to yeah create these crown corporations that were doing everything from uh, you know building new homes for the industrial workforce to actually producing you know weapons and vehicles and and uh, clothing and equipment and, and all the things that were needed for war. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and the remarkable thing about this was, uh, you know, by by simultaneously also regulating uh, the private creation of money by, you know, rec- tightening uh, the rules on the banks, um, you know, this didn't cause any uh, inflation to happen. Like that, that's always the big worry uh, that, that people always raise when you talk about, you know, government uh, basically uh, printing money and spending it into existence. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a little bit different than that in that it's loaning money to itself. So eventually that money comes back out of the supply. Um, but for a time it's in there. Uh, but, you know, to accomplish that without inflation, you just tighten up the private creation of money uh, being done by the banks. So, yeah. uh, and, and so this not only allowed us to uh, achieve a remarkable uh, level of production throughout the entire war, but it also fueled um, the, the, the you know the post-war uh, you know boom. We 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 built all of Canada's infrastructure in that area, and this was basically the period where Canada's middle class emerged, uh, and it was largely because the government was busy doing things like building memorial hockey arenas and all the the hospitals and schools that that are in Canada were largely built in this post-war era, and it was all being accomplished with interest-free loans from the Bank of Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, and it's something that we stopped doing, sadly, in the 1970s. Pierre Trudeau signed an, uh, an international agreement saying that we would not uh, use the Bank of Canada in this way anymore. And since then, what's happened? We've had uh, skyrocketing debts. Uh, we have crumbling infrastructure. And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we, we see we have a whole lot of needs uh, uh, we, we're, you know, pu- public programs are being hit with austerity. So, you know, what I think is needed right now is is basically a big push and an infusion uh, in the, of government money on the level that we did in the uh, uh, in the lead up to the, the Second World War and after, um, and uh, to, to rapidly transform our economy uh, into one that is not threatening our collective survival. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're talking with Robert Greene, writer of Shared Sacrifices of the Past, Show Way Forward on Climate, which you can read on ricochet.media. So in your piece, you also say, uh, and this is sort of an extension of what you're saying, you say, uh, quote, part of the reason remembering is so important to many is that it reminds us of what we are capable of achieving through our collective sacrifices. Yeah. So, in terms of our collective sacrifices, is this? Uh, do you mean this in terms of um, what the government has to sort of invest, or also the sacrifice of uh, the citizens of of Canada? Both. I mean, and that's again what was so remarkable about the war effort is that we were we were sort of demanding that our political leadership do whatever it takes for victory, and simultaneously. Uh, you know, Canadians were also getting involved in all kinds of ways from from uh, purchasing war bonds uh, to uh, doing things like, you know, uh, saving scrap metal and even things like bacon grease were getting recycled for the war effort. Uh, so, you know, that that is kind of what we need right now. Um, I think 
I think too much of the emphasis on sort of how to, um, you know, improve our environmental situation has been put solely on sort of individual consumer actions. And these are important. I don't want to say that's not important, but I think much more important is the sort of collective actions that we take and, and the, the action of, you know, sort of first and foremost, uh, demanding that our government make this uh, a priority. Uh, because, you know, as the IPC has, CC has said, uh, you know, time is running out. And, and we're already seeing the, the, the consequences of this. Like, my God, in the news today, hearing, hearing the voices of people uh, out of Paradise, California, mm-hmm. who, you know, have their entire, you know, community just burnt to the ground. Um, and it's, it's what we've been seeing in B.C. I mean, in the last two years, over a million hectares of forest have burned, you know, two seasons in a row. Um, yep. So, you know, th- we're already living the consequences and and those are just going to increase. And so it's not something that we can be messing around with. I mean, uh, I think uh, Trudeau's move for a carbon tax is a is a step forward, but it's not enough. Yeah, <laughs> we, absolutely. Need to, we need to be doing uh, sort of much more than that. Uh, again, like, uh, you know, a 45 percent reduction in, in 12 years is is a, a pretty uh, tall order. So uh, I always struggle with how to exactly communicate how important the, the climate crisis is and our need to uh, address it. How do you think uh, the media should improve their approach to covering climate change and make it as urgent as an issue as, say, pointing out when Hitler was the enemy? Well, I, I, I think part of it has to be in, in doing a better job of connecting the dots. I mean, I think too often a lot of the events that are reported are sort of reported as, you know, tragic incidences without sort of always, first and foremost, making the connection that these things that are happening are a product of, of climate change mm-hmm. and, and that this is going to be happening more and more. And, and I think doing much more uh, to give voice to the, the courageous scientists that, that are, are ringing the alarm bells about this. I mean, you know, uh, some of the things I've been reading is that they, they're in a state of personal crisis with, you know, observing the data that they're seeing because it, 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 you know, it's unimaginable yeah. what, what the implications are. And I think we all have an obligation to look at that data ourselves. And the media has a role to put that in our face because that's what's going to hopefully cajole us uh, into, into acting and, uh, you know, making us demand of our political leaders to, to make this the, the only priority if necessary, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I... I, I completely agree. I've seen a lot of coverage on these forest fires in uh, in California, and a lot a lot of images of you know fire and burning houses and burned out cars, but very little connecting it to actual uh, 
the, the issue of climate change and showing yeah. that this is happening because of climate change and we need to address this as a serious issue. Otherwise, yeah. this will continue to be uh, a problem. I'm, we're going to, I mean, the droughts, I mean, it's there's endless, really, the hurricanes. It's really yeah. endless in terms of what this has, uh, how this has impacted us. And yeah. the media needs to do a better job at connecting all of these issues. So exactly. do you think there's anything uh, people at home could do to try and push their government and maybe the media and society in general to take climate change more seriously? Well, I think the, the upcoming federal election is going to be a, a chance for, for people to, to make this an issue. Um, I, you know, I think we need to reject, you know, um, all, all of the parties that are, are, are talking about a status quo where, where oil companies continue to be subsidized with billions of dollars of our tax money that could be used to, to you know, create the kind of sustainable economy that, that hopefully uh, will be there for, for future generations. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I saw you at the end of your piece, you discussed uh, briefly the, uh, the protests that were happening around Quebec as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think that's also an important uh, point to, to push on, to make sure people get, yeah, actually get out there in the streets. Exactly, exactly. And it was, a, it was an enormous turnout. We had, you know, uh, tens of thousands of people out uh, in the streets here in, in Montreal, and then, you know, other demos happening in, in cities throughout Quebec. And uh, I think that, that also has to be part of it. Like, this needs to be, a, like, a social movement that is, that is both acting in the, in the electoral sphere, uh, but also even, you know, considering things like civil disobedience to, uh, to put pressure on, uh, you know, the, 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 to, to, to force changes in our society. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Robert Green yeah. is a Montreal teacher, blogger at Montreal Teachers for Change, and is the writer of the opinion piece titled Shared Sacrifices of the Past, Show Way Forward on Climate on Ricochet.media. Robert, thanks again for joining me. My pleasure. Coming up next, a conservative MP has threatened legal action against at least four Twitter users for calling him racist. And I want to get your thoughts on this. 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. Once again, that number is 416-872-1010 or text me at 71010. This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. The David Dole Show continues on News Talk 1010. Welcome back to The David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture, right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Now, before I get to the uh, this segment that I want to discuss here, I got some nice, uh, some nice text messages, <laughs> which is a, a, a nice change. It's always good to see some, some positivity out there. Somebody in Newmarket stayed up to, to listen to the show, so thank you there. And also some great comments about uh, the climate change interview that uh, I just had in the first segment. So thank you very much. But we have to get to something very important now. There is a snowflake alert. And no, I'm not talking about the weather, which, of course, we're going to unfortunately be seeing some, some snow in the future. I'm talking about conservative MP Carrie Diot, who has threatened legal action against at least four people on Twitter that called him racist. <laughs> He's claiming libel and slander. Now, I come from the world of YouTube, where 
If you know anything about YouTube comments, then you know that they are largely terrible. Though I have to say I have a good audience, so there's also a lot of positivity on my comments as well. But uh, just an example, I was going through some of the comments today, and somebody called me a quote-unquote cancerous whore. <laughs> now, as far as I know, I am not a cancerous whore. So when I read that comment, I laughed out loud. I did not run to the phone and call my lawyer and think about suing this person. Um, but so I, I'm going to go more into this story, but I want to get your thoughts on this. So I'm taking your calls at 416-872-1010. And you can also text at 71010. Now, this conservative MP, so he's threatening legal action after he was called racist on Twitter by some Twitter users. Now, I think this seems to be a, uh, it appears to be a, an attack on our, funda our fundamental freedom of expression. Now, one of the accused is Edmonton writer Bashir Mohammed, who received a letter from conservative MP Kerry Diot's lawyer demanding that he remove a series of tweets. He wrote that Kerry Diot is racist on Twitter, pointing to the MP's picture with a well-known white nationalist. Now, Mohammed's lawyer defends his claim, saying in part that Diot is a public figure who has posed with a well-known white nationalist and racist, and uh, he himself posted the photos to social media. And Diot has praised the work of that white nationalist and also has a history of liking tweets made by well-known racist Twitter accounts. And he has also failed to denounce any of these actions even after being called on to do so. So if you are, if you yourself post pictures online with a well-known white nationalist, and yes, I'm not saying this person's name on purpose, uh, I, I, I feel like we don't really need to elevate these people that already have, uh, that are, are already elevated, but I mean, you could look it up if you really want to know who this white nationalist is, but they are a well-known white nationalist. And this conservative MP himself posted these images online as, I guess, I don't know, sort of a support or saying that he likes this person. But legally, there doesn't appear to be any real defense here. So the defense that um, the people can make that, that are being a... a potentially sued over this, is the defense of fair comment. So fair comment protects any opinion fairly made on a matter of public interest. This can involve political commentary or the critical review of books, movies, or even restaurants. So I think it's clear that this is simply fair comment. I mean, if you're in the public eye, you are seen taking a picture with a well-known white nationalist. You have a history of liking tweets that are pro-white nationalism or uh, racist ideas. I think there's a pretty good argument there that you are likely racist. And <laughs> I'm not sure how uh, this conservative MP, uh, Kerry Diot, would be able to prove otherwise. I mean, this is the, the sort of argument where if you're being called racist, at this point, just take it. Don't, don't create this whole story out of it because now it's become a news item and now more people are aware that you took images or took pictures with a, a well-known white nationalist and that you have liked white nationalist tweets in the past. Now, uh, again, I'm taking your calls on this, 416-872-1010. 
or text me at 71010. Now, this white nationalist who, as I said, will remain nameless unless somebody, uh, unless any caller brings the name up, has, uh, let me give you some examples here. So this is uh, some direct quotes from this white nationalist. Quote, no one is going to save the white man except for himself. Here's another one. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children, end quote. Now, <laughs> what else does that mean? Obviously, this white nationalist is for white nationalism. They are for securing the future of their white children. Uh, here's another one. This is from this white nationalist that a conservative MP, Carrie Diot, took a picture with. Uh, so this white nationalist said in, in relation to, uh, to letting immigrants in, quote, solutions are going to become more and more drastic if we keep letting in these immigrants. Clearly intimating, I think, a race war. Now, I don't quite understand how somebody can take a picture with somebody who's, who uh, has uh, said these sorts of things and not think, hey, maybe this will look bad. Maybe I shouldn't do this. But all conservative MP Kerry Diot had to do was denounce it, say, oh, it was a mistake. I should not have taken pictures with this white nationalist. Clearly, I don't uh, agree with these ideas. And sure, I may have been called racist, but I'm just going to let that slide because people call names, uh, people call people names on Twitter and online in general all the time. It's not a big deal. Me as somebody, again, I have a YouTube channel, I'm on Twitter, every day I get called something. I've been called racist. Right now, <laughs> right now somebody sent a message in and, uh, and they called me racist. So <laughs> this happens constantly and I laugh it off. You know why? Because I know I am not the things that I am being called. You, people only get touchy about these issues if they realize that, hey, maybe, it's, maybe people will think it's true because there's actually some merit to it. There is some actual verifiable fact, like somebody I took a picture with who's a white nationalist. Uh, so I, I really don't understand this. And uh, Edmonton writer Bashir Mohammed, in response to the letter that he received from uh, Kerry Diaz's lawyer, said, quote, if this was years ago, if I was still in university when this happened, I would have deleted the tweet. But now I realize that I should stand up for my free expression and things that I truly believe in, which is that a politician should be accountable to people he endorses and the people he takes photos with. So I think it's pretty clear that Kerry uh, <laughs> Diaz should not have taken this picture. But we have a call from uh, Robert from Toronto. Uh, Robert, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I don't know who the particular guy you're talking about is that, that, that you're uh, classifying as a white nationalist, but I don't think anything that you've read is white nationalism from my perspective. I think of, you know, so you think it's nationalists it's as, as being people that hate minority groups and want to obliterate minority groups. What and do you think securing a future for white children, what do you think that means? I, I, I think that means that when white children grow up and become adults looking for jobs, that they aren't going to find jobs if we continue to promote all of the other groups in front of white people. Do you know how ridiculous that sounds? 
White people um, right now run the country. They're not getting. They're, they're, what is? Getting, I'm white, well, by the way. <laughs> like, well, that's good. That's that's great. But, but I'll tell you, if you try and go for a job in any public sector, in any university, as a white person, as particularly as a white man, you get put at the back of the line. You're not at the front of the line for sure. Maybe it's because white men are in every other position, like this well, radio show right now. You, I'm you white. Be, I got this radio right. show. You may be right, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, uh, make things better for people looking for jobs. I have another question for you, though. Okay, so uh, another comment that this white nationalist said, uh, if we keep letting immigrants in, solutions are going to become more and more drastic. What do you think that means? I have no idea. Like, I really don't. I, I, I know what you're pointing to. You think that he's suggesting that we all have to shoot immigrants when they come across the border because that's a drastic move. But he's not saying that, and I don't know what he's saying. But that's, isn't that the whole point, though? That's how these people ride the line. That's how they're able to get the exposure that they get because they don't outright say, hey, I want to kill people that don't look like me. What they do is they ride the line. But people that are other white nationalists, they know, they hear that dog whistle. They know exactly what that person means. I actually hear people say, I want to kill these minority people. I hear, in fact, I hear women say, we've got to kill all men. And the, and the, and the, uh, the Washington Post publishes those things. <laughs> but these are not I, I people that it. have any sort of platform or seri- or any way serious about it. The n- white nationalist I'm talking about has a has a, a history, a deep-rooted history in espousing these ideas, these white nationalist ideas. So I I mean if, if but even a, okay, how about let's say uh, clearly we aren't going to agree on that. But apart from that, what do, do you think that a conservative MP or anybody any any politician should be suing somebody over being called racist or being called any name on Twitter. Do you think that's okay? I, I think at some point somebody has to step in and say, you can't divide the country like that by putting people into groups and saying, our group is good and everybody else is bad. But that wasn't the question. The question is, should, should we be able to sue somebody for calling us a name online? Yeah, I, I actually do, because I, I think 100% I do. I, don't, I thought your question was about whether a politician should be able to do that. But I think everybody should be able to do that. A politician may be uh, more game for being called names that none of us want to be called. But these kind of divisive, tribalistic, uh, uh, um, divisive... And but if somebody is racist, isn't it yeah. okay to call them racist? Yeah, 100%. But okay, I, I, what is racist? What do you think racist is in your mind? Uh, racist means, for me, first of all, it's a negative description. It's harmful. Uh, there are lots of things that divide people by race that I wouldn't call racist in the sociological sense, but in the, def- in the dictionary definition sense, they are racist. So, for example, if you're a doctor and you don't look at people's race, I think that's malpractice. There are certain diseases that only follow races, and certain races have those diseases. And if you don't take race into account, um, you're being a bad physician. But in terms, but of in terms is, of not wanting to have immigrants come in, that's not racist to you. Uh, it could be. It, it could very well be. I mean, there there are other reasons to not have immigrants come in. Race is one of them. If you don't want people from Jamaica coming in, that's racist. Okay. If you don't well, want people, we agree. Who are, <laughs> so if you don't want people who are, are drug dealers and rapists and murderers coming in, I don't think that's racist. <laughs> yeah, but that isn't based on race, though. I mean, you understand that. Like, I mean, we can go right. into it. 
that you understand that, for example, in America, the majority yeah. of the crime is committed by people that were born in America. And in fact, immigrants commit by, by uh, per capita less crime than people born in the country. What, what I was responding to, though, is that I thought you were linking up racism with the quote that you read, which didn't say anything about race. It just said immigrants. And I gave you an example where having those kind of immigrants come in would not be a good thing. I wasn't talking about race either. What do you mean, those kind of immigrants? People that are drug dealers, rapists, and murderers. But that's not a, not but, yeah. But those are criminals. Those aren't. That's not like that. That's, that's right. not a race. That's right. So he wasn't talking about race. I mean, the quote that you gave didn't say anything about race. It talked about immigrants. No, the <laughs> this conservative MP took pictures with a white nationalist, with a well-known white nationalist, and this white nationalist who doesn't want immigration because they want to secure a future for their white children. I mean, if that's not racist, I don't know what is. Um, I don't see it as racist, but there's nothing, there's nothing about <laughs> race in there except his group. His okay, group. well, I think we're going in circles, Robert. Thank you for the call, though. That okay. was a uh, very lively, uh, <laughs> lively discussion there. So again, look... If you're just joining us, I'm talking about conservative MP Carrie Diot, who has threatened legal action against at least four people on Twitter that called him racist. Now, <laughs> he's claiming libel and slander. I don't think uh, this falls under libel or slander as it falls under fair comment, which protects any opinion fairly made on a matter of public interest. This can involve political commentary. But... That's enough on that. Coming up next, the results of the American midterm elections and why a battle going on in Georgia should bother anyone concerned about the future of democracy. This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. You're listening to the David Dole Show. News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Now, before I get to this uh, this next segment here, I, I'm still recovering from that last call. So if you didn't hear it, it was a discussion between me and somebody that uh, doesn't believe a white nationalist that I uh, described uh, comments from is uh, is a racist uh, some of their comments, this white nationalist comment, not the caller, but the white nationalist I was referring to, some of their comments included um, how we should deal with uh, immigrants now because it may get worse in the future. And uh, <laughs> I could just go into that whole conversation again. I'm afraid I might. Uh, somebody sent in a, a message saying, how are you not beating your head on the wall right now? Uh, yeah, I was I was close to. But I'll definitely be... Uh, Posting that discussion online, uh, follow me on Twitter at David Dole, uh, last name spelled D-O-E-L. And uh, at some point uh, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow you'll see a tweet about me posting a, a link to that discussion because, uh, I mean, <laughs> it was lively. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. But more importantly, the midterm elections happened in the States this past week. Now, I follow American politics uh, fairly closely. If you go to my YouTube channel at therationalnational.com, you'll, you'll see that. So was there a blue wave for the Democratic Party as expected? Well, kind of. So the Democratic Party did win back the House, which was fantastic. So it means they're 
uh, potentially can be now more investigations into Trump, including potentially seeing his, uh, his tax returns. And uh, also, of course, by winning back the House, they can stop harmful legislation from passing. But there were also disappointing losses, like in Texas, Beto O'Rourke lost his Senate race against uh, Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, who I do not understand how anybody votes for that guy. He is just oozes phoniness, oozes pure politician sleaze, takes all the money he can from large corporations, big donors, and then tells the voters he actually fights for them when he doesn't. But regardless, Beto O'Rourke, I mean, for a state that's supposed to be deep red, he came within two points. So at some point in the future, Texas is flipping. But of course, uh, Florida, there was the loss, though there is now recounts in Florida for the Gillum race for governor and uh, the, the Bill Nelson race for Senate as well. But Georgia, I, I, I have to touch on Georgia here because there is, so Stacey Abrams went up against uh, Secretary of State of Georgia, Brian Kemp for governor of Georgia. Now, Stacey Abrams initially lost, but the votes are still being counted in an election where there were nearly 4 million ballots cast. Now, let me get into some uh, numbers here. So pay close attention. As of today, the unofficial election results show Kemp leading by 1.5% with 58,000 more votes, uh, a gap Abrams has closed from 75,000 votes since election night. But in the three months leading up to election day, more than 85,000 voters were purged from rolls under Brian Kemp. So Brian Kemp, who Stacey Abrams was up against in the race, he controlled the entire voting system. And people were purged from the rolls. So, th I mean, there's even more of this. During 2017, 668,000 voters were purged. Of those 2017 numbers, 200,000 people left the state, died, or moved outside their district, making them legitimate cancellations. So 200,000 of that 668 uh, purge were legitimate uh, cancellations. But of the 400,000 who supposedly moved, 340,000 never moved and were wrongly purged. Also from 2012 to 2016, 1.5 million voters were purged. More than 10% of all voters in Georgia. So for comparison, 750,000 were purged from 2008 to 2012. So <laughs> this is not even to mention all the issues on election day. So one county in Georgia had a single working voting machine at their, uh, at their poll because they weren't provided with the power supplies for the others. Now, Georgia is also one of only five states that doesn't provide paper ballot backups. No paper trail. And of course, the voter purges that I was referring to earlier happened in largely African-American communities. This election was stolen from Stacey Abrams. Now, in the next segment, I'm going to get a little more into um, the other races that, uh, that show potentially brighter future for the Democratic Party as actually being a party for the people. So coming up next, in addition to that, uh, is there a magical solution for PTSD? I'll discuss some incredible research in the field of psychedelic medicine. This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show on News Talk 1010. 
Welcome back to The David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture, right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Now, post-traumatic stress disorder, also known as PTSD, is a huge problem facing veterans and others that have experienced traumatic events. But there's continued research into psychedelics potentially being used as a medicine to treat PTSD. So researchers spent five years dosing 26 combat veterans and first responders with varying levels of MDMA in a clinical setting. On average, before the study, participants had extreme PTSD symptoms, given a mean ranking of 87.1, with anything above 50 being severe. They were given varying doses and treated to an eight-hour guided trip with a professional therapist. And after this experience on MDMA, their PTSD rating fell from 87.1 to 38.8. Now, obviously, there's more to it than just uh, the medicine itself. Beforehand, the patients are walked through how PTSD affects the brain and are set uh, realistic and set realistic goals for each individual, sort of to uh, gauge the experience and better understand potentially how the MDMA uh, may help them. And the whole eight-hour experience, which is one of three separate experiences, includes a safe room with fresh flowers, light music, and a therapist on call to guide them through it. There's, of course, also follow-up visits from therapists, phone calls, and continuing therapy. Now, this study was so successful that MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, is pushing to designate MDMA treatment for PTSD as a breakthrough therapy with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. But first, I think we have to get over our fear of psychedelics, as a, as right now, society is not in a position to really address this issue properly. But if we can get these studies out there, get this information out there, and show people that psychedelics can potentially help them with PTSD, anxiety, and other ailments, then we can use that as a, a real solution for these issues. You can follow me on Twitter at David Dole, last name spelled D-O-E-L, or visit me on YouTube at therationalnational.com. Thanks for listening to The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010.